You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Today we're going to begin our verse-by-verse journey through Romans, and if you take it to heart, it will change your life. It did mine, it continues to do so. Today our goal is to do three things as we set the stage for Romans. First, I want you to see the main theme in the book. I want to give a basic outline. Secondly, kind of a road map we will refer to often as we travel through Romans. And then we're going to actually dive into the first seven verses. That's what we're doing today, the introduction, and if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The privilege it is to open up the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God and and read it. This is the Word of God, Romans 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. God has used Romans to change many lives. According to S. Lewis Johnson, In countless instances, Romans has been the means of arousing individuals and churches out of spiritual lethargy. Tim Keller says the letter to the Romans is a book that repeatedly changes the world by changing people. Romans changes people in ways that transform the church. German monk Martin Luther was told that God required him to live a righteous life to be saved, and he hated God for requiring him to do what he could not. But he finally grasped the meaning of Romans 1.17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's a righteousness that is, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Another reformer said that Romans was his entrance to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Augustine, in the 4th century, Bishop of Hippo, Algeria, basically, had a, a Christian mother but rejected the faith. He was a teacher of rhetoric in the 
city of Milan, and he traced his conversion to Christ from, readings, from reading Romans 13, 13 and 14. It started there. John Bunyan was so inspired after reading Romans in Bedford Prison that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And so Romans has helped the hearts of countless people who have taken it to heart. As one person said, it is the sum and substance of the voice of God to humans. And so I am anticipating a life-changing journey as we discover God's rich, rich gospel truths and treasures in the book of Romans. First thing I want to do is give you the main theme of this letter. And it's found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The theme of Romans says, when I, I, am not, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and then Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted, the righteous shall live by faith. When you think Romans, you should think righteousness. That overarching word, righteousness, it's the overarching theme. God's righteousness credited to all who trust in Christ. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, received through faith in Christ. It's a glorious truth. It's a life-changing truth. God justifies guilty, condemned sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's huge. This is what Paul is writing about. He's writing about God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. So there's your main theme. Now I'm going to give you a basic outline. A lot of people have outlined Romans before. I'm going to give you a very simple outline of the entire book, four points. What some people don't realize is Romans is a very straightforward book. It's the longest of Paul's letters, but it is systematic and it's very simple in its layout. Romans is quite simply an explanation of the gospel. And so the first thing in our outline is believing the gospel. That's chapters 1 through 4. The basics of mankind's sin and God's provision of a way of salvation. You see that all in the first four chapters. Secondly, we see resting in the gospel, chapters 5 through 8. You've got progressive sanctification as well as the struggles of of, of life in Christ, all the struggles associated with life and following Christ as someone who is sinful, but also you get to ultimate victory in chapter 8. It's a very high point in the book of Romans. So believing the gospel, chapters 1 through 4, resting in the gospel, chapters 5 through 8, and then rejoicing in the gospel, chapters 9 through 11, where you see the wonders of God's electing grace, God's sovereignty, man's accountability to God, and you see the fate of those who reject Christ. But we're not wrestling with the gospel there. We are rejoicing in what God does. And then you come to the last chapters, chapters 12 through 16, simply living the gospel. Living the gospel based on what God has done in Christ, outlined in the first 11 chapters, how God has credited righteousness to us, here's how we're to live in light of the magnificent gospel truths we've seen. If you want a really basic two-point outline of Romans, you could just say this. Chapters 1 through 11 set the theological foundation. Chapters 12 through 16 give the practical application. 
But I don't want you to mistake Romans and say, well, yeah, the only the last part is, is practical. All of Romans is very practical for your life. And as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Romans is going to equip us for every good work. C.H. Dodd said, Romans is the first great work of Christian theology. Uh, He called it a sterling handbook to the theology by which Christian believers are to live. This is not just to be known, it is to be lived out in life. So with that, let's dive into the first seven verses. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Now if I asked you, you know, what is Romans 1 about, many of you would say, well, it's a pronouncement of God's wrath against ungodliness. And I would say, well, that's the second half of the chapter. The first half of the chapter is this heartfelt pastoral greeting from Paul where he is literally stating his intentions to bless the church. This is what we're seeing today. And these opening verses, they are densely packed with some of the weightiest theological statements in the whole Bible. Paul just dives into the deep end right away. And what he does is he highlights Jesus Christ and his effects upon his chosen ones. The idea you see in these first seven verses is really the glorious majesty and work of Jesus Christ that dramatically changes people's lives. How majestic and glorious Christ's work is and how majestic and glorious Christ himself is and how he dramatically changed people's lives. In Paul's opening salutation here, he identifies himself and he identifies his recipients. And usually you write a letter, you know, and it's person A to person B, right? The way you did a letter back then. But here he identifies himself, he identifies his recipients, and he gives a bonus. He gives a statement of the identity and glorious majesty of Jesus Christ. So the three parts to our outline today are very simple. Number one, Paul's identity. Number two, Christ's identity. And number three, the believer's identity. That's where we're going today, and we're going to dive in right away with Paul's identity. Verses one and two. Verse one begins, Paul. He's writing Romans from Corinth in Greece, during his third missionary journey, to Christians he had never met but hoped to meet soon. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Those seven verses that I read just a few moments ago, on one first century Sunday, the church gathered in Rome to first hear those words that we're looking at today. And churches have been gathering for thousands of years ever since to to hear the word of God. Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, born around the time of Christ's birth in Tarsus. Uh, He spent his early life in Jerusalem studying under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee, just like his father before him, a member of the strictest Jewish sect. But he was dramatically saved while traveling to Damascus with the purpose of arresting Christians. And notably, when, when Paul was dramatically saved, what he did right away was he proclaimed Christ, right off the bat. You'll notice as we discover his identity, 
that he points out his master, his calling, and his work. First thing you see is Paul's master is Jesus. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus. Greek word is doulos. It's a common New Testament word for bondservant or slave. In Greek culture, it referred to forced permanent service as a slave. Paul transforms that term. He uses it as a Hebrew would have described a servant who wants to voluntarily serve a master that he loves and respects. Old Testament believers, such as Abraham and David, were called servants of Yahweh. The prophets were called servants of God. Paul is very happy to call himself a bondservant or slave of Christ Jesus. Here you have a Jew seeing himself as a servant of the majestic Lord Jesus Christ. To be a servant of Yahweh and a servant of Jesus is the same thing. So he is a servant of Christ Jesus. The next thing we learn about Paul is his calling was as an apostle. Called to be an apostle. Literally an apostle by calling. He's an apostle by a divinely initiated calling, not because he wanted to, not because he saw a list of, of openings in the church and said, well, I want that. Christ chose Paul, equipped him for ministry. He's an apostle. It means one who is sent. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that God built the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, you build a foundation once. You don't keep building it. And an apostle was one who had seen the risen Messiah, who had been appointed by him to spread the gospel. So here is Paul, an ambassador, speaking with Christ's authority. An authoritative representative of Jesus Christ. It's important to remember there are no apostles today. That is an office, that is an appointment, that is not a gift. He was called to be an apostle. He's a bondservant of Christ, called to be an apostle. And the next thing you see about Paul is his work was the gospel. His work was the gospel. He's, he says he's set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Paul's work was that he had been set apart for God's gospel. He's probably remembering that, that conversion experience on the road to Damascus as he is writing these words. He's literally saying, I, I am separated to the gospel. He's separated to God. And that word comes from the word Pharisee. So here's Paul. This is mind-boggling. He is now a born-again Pharisee in the best sense of the term, the best possible way. He's set apart for the gospel. Sixty times in Romans you'll see this word. It means good news. It was used in those days by Rome in, in emperor worship. They would use this title Good news, gospel, the town herald would, would go out and make an important announcement from the emperor, like a, the birth of a son. But here Paul makes it very clear, this is the gospel of God, not the gospel of man. This is the gospel of God, God's good news. Paul was God's chosen instrument to spread the gospel to the Roman Empire. He, he was consumed with this message. He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 
preached the same gospel he tried to destroy. The gospel that says that God will save from sin's power and that God will give eternal life. And he did this over three missionary journeys. You can remember some of Acts and you'll notice that um, he goes to Jerusalem with an offering for the needy church there. He's falsely accused by Jews. He's beaten by a mob. He's arrested by the Romans. Two years later, he exercises his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. Goes on a very dangerous journey violent storm at sea and shipwreck, and he finally reaches Rome. Before that time, he had written to the Roman church. He had written this letter to the Roman church, and he finally sees the people that he had longed to see. Paul's life, he was briefly freed and then arrested again and suffered martyrdom at Rome in probably 65 to 67 A.D., Paul's describing himself. He said, I'm not a good-looking guy. I have unimpressive looks, but I'm spiritually strong in Christ through the Holy Spirit's power. That's what you want. Forget about your looks. Those fade. You want to be spiritually strong in Christ through the Holy Spirit's power. And God had told him, he said, look, my grace is sufficient for you, sufficient for your every need. He enables Paul to faithfully finish the course, finish his race. So Paul is affirming and declaring the word of God. Look at verse 2. The gospel that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is good news, but it is not new news. It was promised in the Old Testament, proclaimed in the New Testament. God promised beforehand. The Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning Christ and the gospel. He promised beforehand through his prophets, code word for all the writers of the Old Testament. When they would say like the law and the prophets meant the entire Old Testament, law written by Moses, is Moses also is a prophet. He says it's promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now in those days, just like today, non-biblical writings were very popular. Uh, They weren't teaching the gospel, but they were often studied more closely than scripture think about it you might be studying a certain book more closely than you study the word of god but what he's pointing out is that divinely inspired old testament taught the gospel the prophet spoke clearly of a messiah whose sacrifice would make it possible and furthermore galatians tells us that the gospel was preached beforehand to abraham when, when God said, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he identifies himself. Paul clearly identifies himself. And then he identifies Christ. He speaks of Christ and his identity, verses 3 through 5. And it's important to remember, the gospel is, is about who, not what. This is not Facts to be memorized. This is not advice to be followed. This is a declaration of what has been done in Christ. And here you see the majesty of Christ. First thing you see about Jesus is he is God's son. Verse 3, he says, The gospel concerning his son, son of God, a deity, fully God, of the same essence of the, as the Father, Jesus has a divine nature to be worshipped as God. You look in the Gospels, you see the title Son of God used nearly 30 times identifying Jesus as God. 
He's fully God. And he's fully man. The theology of Romans is God-centric. Salvation comes from God. And Christ-centered. He is uniquely the son of God who literally cut the covenant with his blood at the cross. And, and when he says concerning his son, he is setting the stage for everything he will say in the rest of Romans. This is a very uh, crucial point here. Christ's sonship is the foundation of everything else that Paul says. The content of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge says the son, this phrase, son of God, expresses the relationship of the second person of the Trinity to the first person of the Trinity as it exists from eternity. He was and is the eternal son. And then he says in verse 3, descended from David according to the flesh. Born, literally, descended from David. He's talking about the son of David. He's talking about the incarnation of Christ, who is fully God, but now fully human, as to his human nature, born. He was conceived in the virgin's womb by the Holy Spirit. And so while he was eternally the son, he enters the world in the incarnation, takes on a role of submission to the Father. And he fulfills all the promises of Scripture. He is descended, or he is the seed of David. This is another crucial term for Christ. The Old Testament prophesied the Messiah would be in the lineage of David. Both Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his legal father, were descendants of David. John makes believing that Christ has come in the flesh a crucial test of Christian orthodoxy. So because he is fully human and fully God, he can serve as mankind's substitute, a sympathetic high priest, son of David, cosmic king, absolute sovereign authority, what he says goes. There's a connection here uh, between descendant of David and son of God, a clear reference to the Davidic covenant of Christ, uh, which is the central part of the gospel, Davidic sonship filled with messianic meaning, being added to divine sonship as a fundamental feature of Christ. And Paul goes on, Verse 4 says he was declared. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now there you have the most dense theological sentence in these first seven verses. So we need to take a little bit of time on that. What does declared mean? What does it mean that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God? Now, in the New Testament, the word declared consistently means to appoint or to determine or to fix. So in the Old Testament, you've got to go back to the Old Testament, and, and you realize this appointment that is being spoken of here is seen in Psalm 2, verse 7, where the Davidic son is decreed to be the anointed king. The writer of Hebrews says that in Psalm 2, verse 7, God was declaring Christ to be the Messiah when he said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Hebrews 1.5 quotes 2 Samuel 7.14, the Father, God the Father, saying to God the Son, Christ, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Now both of those are in the future tense, meaning that sometime after the psalmist's time, Christ would assume a role that he previously didn't have in his incarnation. 
And the idea is not that Jesus was declared at the resurrection to be what he was all along, the eternal Son of God. The point is that Jesus was appointed God's Son in power in the resurrection. Exalted to a level of power and authority he did not previously have in the incarnation. The appointment of Jesus described here is his appointment as messianic king. So Peter, when he's preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, from Jesus' resurrection, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Paul, he's in, in Acts 13, 33, quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, and says this, God has fulfilled the promises to their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today, resurrection day, I have begotten you. So Christ's resurrection inaugurated a stage in his messianic existence, not formally his. Now he reigns in heaven as Lord and Christ. His sonship in power is referring to his exaltation. That's why Philippians 2 verse 9 says that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is God's stamp of approval on everything that Jesus did. This is huge. And it's according, verse 4 still, we're still in verse 4, it's according to the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness. What does through the spirit of holiness mean? It's quite simply another way to say according to the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. According to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working in Christ accomplished Christ's resurrection and his every miracle. In the incarnation, Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did the will of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, seen most clearly in his obedience that led him to the cross. And in the resurrection, he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, by his resurrection from the dead. His victory over death is the supreme demonstration of, of the fact that he is God the Son. And then Paul says, still in verse 4, that he is Lord. He says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the imperial authority over all creation. The Lord, our Lord as believers, where we personally submit to his authority as exalted king. When Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, what he does is he summarizes everything he said so far. He summarizes everything he has said so far. The Son is first Jesus Christ. Christ, the historical messianic figure who will fulfill the covenant promises. He is our Lord, the exalted sovereign, judge over all. And, and what Paul is giving here is Christ's humiliation and his exaltation, his incarnation, his resurrection. And this culminates in this magnificent affirmation of the glory of Christ. He is, he is ascribing all glory to Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. That's what we need to do. As Lord, Jesus gives grace to those who serve him. 
verse 5, he says, through whom, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. Grace, the unmerited favor of God shown to guilty sinners, a gift from God apart from any human effort or achievement and apostleship. They're sent by God with the message of salvation. We here doesn't mean we as in us today, but Paul and his co-workers in that time. Saying, this is what we have received. We, God gives us grace to serve him. And then he gives the reason, verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. As Lord, Jesus brings about the obedience of faith. What does that mean? The obedience of faith. Well, hope you're ready for this. The rest of Romans will show us. Seriously, the rest of Romans is all about the obedience of faith based on God's righteousness. In fact, go to the very end of Romans, and this is not a one-week series, by the way. Go to the very end of Romans, Romans chapter 16, and the doxology, the ending of Romans. So we're looking at the intro today. Let's go all the way to the end. I love hearing the rustling of Bible pages and the imperceptible swipe of the finger on the electronic device. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about, look at it, the obedience of faith. There's your bookend right there. The obedience of faith. The only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. And, and so the rest of Romans will, will show us what, what the obedience of faith is. Briefly right now, let me give you two things though. First, what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that to be saved you must have both faith and do obedience as grounds for being right with God. This is obedience that comes from faith. This is obedience launched from a wholehearted trust in Jesus. It's the fruit of saving faith, not a condition for salvation. Secondly, true faith in your heart will bring about obedience in your life. The obedience that comes from faith. Joyful obedience will flow from your life when you fully trust Christ. And he says it's among the nations. This is an obedience of faith, and we should say praise God to this, to all the nations including us. And here you got Paul's goal really being our goal when, when 2 Timothy 2, 2 says that whatever you've learned and received and trust to faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. But I want you to notice that phrase for his name's sake because in our English Bibles, it is not the last phrase in verse five, but it is the last phrase in Greek in verse five, for his name's sake. Name signifying the character and being of a person um, he's focusing, by putting that as the last phrase in, in the Greek, he is focusing on the glory of Jesus Christ. God's goal in proclaiming the gospel is the glory of Jesus Christ. The ultimate, the ultimate reason for, for giving out the gospel is not the salvation of sinners. Now, I got your attention. The gospel is not primarily about our salvation. 
It is primarily about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The glory and praise of Jesus Christ is the highest goal. And it's accomplished through preaching the gospel to all. So Paul is identifying himself here. He's identifying the majestic Lord Jesus Christ. And then, in verses 6 and 7, he reveals the believer's identity. Very simply, very beautifully, he shows what our identity in Christ is. Beautiful truths regarding who we are in Christ. The first thing he says is that we're called to belong to Christ. We're called to belong to Jesus. He says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The gospel is going to go to all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That is referring to God's effectual call of elect sinners to salvation, not the general call to all men to believe. Um, God has not only given out the general external invitation to believe the gospel, but his effectual calling where he draws you to himself as one who has been chosen by him for salvation. So the believers he's writing to are called to belong to Jesus Christ. The initiative in salvation is God's. Salvation comes from God. He took the initiative in sovereign grace. He took the initiative in Paul's salvation, and he takes the initiative in yours. And he's writing in verse 7 to all those in Rome. It was the capital, the most important city of the Roman Empire. It was founded 753 B.C. on the banks of the Tiber River, 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. At that point, there was a population of 1 million people. Many were slaves. So here you have Rome, and he's writing to people who are living in Rome, a city with magnificent, beautiful buildings. The Emperor's Palace, Circus Maximus, the Forum. But many of the million people living there were slaves living in slums. And some were saved at Pentecost, probably started the church in Rome. But one thing to note, this is very interesting, that unlike his other letters, Paul is not correcting some big issue in the church in Rome. It was a solid church. It wasn't a perfect church. It was a solid church. And like every church, they needed basic doctrinal and practical instruction. So called to belong to Jesus, and then he says this, loved by God. Loved by God. We're loved by God in Christ. God loves his people. I want to tell you a story about Pastor S. Lewis Johnson and how he described his conversion to Christ in the early 1940s, some 20-some years before I was even born. He was living in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was asked to go to a meeting. He was actually asked to go to a tea. Now, guys don't go to teas, right? Right? No, we, we can drink tea, but we don't go to a tea. And here's what he says. He says, I didn't go to teas in the first place. But this one was with the preacher. Nevertheless, I was persuaded. I thought it was harmless. After all, he was beginning a series of meetings this week. And if I could go to the tea, I could escape the meetings. Everything would be wonderful. So I went to the tea. During the discussion, I objected to the Bible as the word of God. And I wouldn't listen to it because I didn't think it was the word of God. Finally, and they're in Texas, by the way, finally I spoke to Donald Gray Barnhouse, the preacher, and said, how can we know the Bible is the word of God? His answer showed me that I hadn't thought a great deal about the matter. When the tea was finished, there was going to be an evening service. I never intended to go to the service. 
I only promised to attend the tea, and even that was a sacrifice because I probably would have been playing golf that afternoon. And then Dr. Barnhouse says to the crowd, who's driving me to church? To which my wife said, we will. I was very frustrated over this, Johnson says. I had been commandeered. I found myself sitting in about the third row listening to the great preacher preach on God's plan of the ages. For the first time in my life, I heard someone speak with authority about Jesus Christ. But I didn't want to admit that I was touched. Mary went to the meeting the next day by herself. When she came home, I asked her a lot of questions. The next morning as I got up to go to work, I just blurted out, you've got to get a babysitter for every night this week. I'm going to hear every one of those messages. That week I came face to face with Jesus Christ and was saved. God saved me. And then he asks, and I'm going to ask you the same question, have you ever been brought face to face with Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you? Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. You don't become a Christian based on your status, your family, your achievements, your worthiness, your money, or by any good deed. Only by the sheer grace of God in Jesus Christ who purchased salvation at the cross by shedding his blood in the place of lost sinners so that they might be saved. As as the scriptures say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know the Savior we proclaim? Come to Christ today. Turn from your sins and obey Jesus Christ by believing in him solely by grace through faith in Christ. Loved by God. And then he says something else. Look at verse seven. Loved by God, and called to be saints. Called to be saints, called as holy ones. The truth that God has set believers apart from sin to himself so that they are holy ones, and they are being progressively sanctified, being made more like Christ, being made holy. And you know what a proof of sanctification is? You ever wonder, like, I know I'm a believer, am I being sanctified? Well, here's a proof of sanctification. You sin less and you feel worse about it. You sin less than you used to and you feel worse about your sin. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you aren't being progressively sanctified, you won't see Jesus because you aren't saved. Paul says, called as holy ones, and they are recipients of grace and peace. Here's his common greeting of blessing, grace to you and peace. We enjoy this from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This then is the introduction to the book of Romans. Paul identifies himself as a servant of Christ. He identifies Christ, and he reveals the believer's identity, chosen, loved, sanctified by God. And in the process, what he's showing us is the glorious majesty and the work of Jesus Christ that dramatically changes our lives. Romans is an explanation of the gospel. It's to be known and it's to be lived. I want to do this as as I close. I want to review 
really present to you, and we'll be reviewing this throughout this series, three theme words for this series, and, and really how these, these verses that we've looked at today relate. You might have seen the title slide, Romans, unashamed, uncondemned, unconformed. Because we've been declared right with God through faith in Christ, we are unashamed. That's chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And uncondemned, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. That really fits with called to belong to Jesus Christ. The formerly alienated have access into his presence. But then you've got unconformed. And I want to focus on this for a few moments. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want to focus on that in, in our final moments on that phrase. And the phrase in verse 7 that says, called to be saints. Called to be saints. Made holy, sanctified, obedient. David uh, Van Drunen wrote a book called The Glory of God Alone. And he said that the fear of the Lord is the preeminent characteristic of a Christian. And he said, by nature, God is all glorious and worthy of all praise. And he said, to honor God properly in the early 21st century, we must be attentive to temptations that confront us in especially strong ways. In particular, he says, the curse of narcissism an excessively high and unrealistic opinion of ourselves and obsession with our image. And then he says, to whatever extent we humanize God and bring him down to our level, the fear of the Lord will hardly make much sense to us. The gospel is supposed to bring about massive changes in our, in our character and our behavior. But there are so few professing believers who are making an impact. There's average living with unexceptional lives. I, I look in the mirror on a daily basis and sometimes think I'm living an unexceptional life. I'm settling for lower than God intends. We're called to be saints. The gospel should change us. We shouldn't stay the same for years on end and have people say, what's wrong with Joe? No one here is named Joe, right? The gospel should change us. If we're not changed, we need to ask ourselves if we really trust Christ, if we really understand the gospel. Does the Spirit testify with our spirit that we are children of God? Do we possess what we profess? Are we just going to keep getting unhinged over everything left and right? Or are we going to cling to Jesus with every ounce of our being? I want to take Romans to heart. Don't think that your head is going to be stuffed full of all these theological truths for the, for the, for the reason to know these truths. But know that this is for the reason for your life to be transformed. And for, for you to be able to say to God, God, please use me as I am. And make me what I'm not. Make me what I'm not yet. You know, as a church, we could, you know, if they have rankings and stuff, we could have like the best singing in the world and the best Bible studies and the best outreach and the best missions and all that. And if our hearts are not right with God, 
We could be doing those things out of pride and competition and worldly-minded things and hidden sins and forbidden things and fear and compromise. That's not pleasing to God. Alexander the Great, there's a story about him where he had a soldier in his army who was also named Alexander. And he fled from the enemy. And Alexander was really upset, and he said, bring him to me. And he brought the soldier to him, and he said, what did you do? And he goes, I fled from the enemy. And he was, he was outraged, basically. And he says, okay, you either change your name or change your ways. Ask yourself the question, do I honor the name of Christ in my life, or do I run in the face of the enemy, or do I run with the enemy? I hope that, this is my prayer, that as we read and reflect and, and live out the book of Romans, that, that we would all be prepared to have our hearts and our lives changed. And we would willingly embrace that. Because Romans is going to force us to, to ask, have I broken through into the freedom that the gospel brings? Do I know the truth and has the truth set me free? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that that you are the one that we worship, that we adore, that we love. Our prayer, Lord, is that we would love you more and offer our lives without reserve to you more and more so that our lives would be a bright display of the beauty of knowing Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.